0: Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. And we are joined via video conference by Montse Alvarado, Vice President and Executive Director at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Montse has worked at Beckett since 2009. In addition to her work as a religious liberty adv- advocate, she serves as an advisor or board member to several ministries, uh, such as Focus, the Given Institute, the Hispanic Affairs Advisory Council for the Philos Project, the Council of Major Superiors of Women Religious, and last but certainly not least, the USCCB Committee for Religious Liberty. Monse, thank you so much for taking the time out, taking some time to join us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, and, and I'm especially grateful because Beckett is just absurdly busy right now, uh, at least it seems to me. Uh, you've got... You've got several cases um, before the Supreme Court right now, and you've been getting involved in some of these church reopening issues. Um, has it, I mean, is this, is this an unusual year? Has it always, is it always like this? And it's just, it, it, or it just seems like you have a number of big time issues that are in the public eye that Beckett is just right in the middle of.
1: Yeah, it's a couple of things, right? It is. It's unusually busy, um, but I, would, I, would, I wish I could say it was unusual, but the past 10 years have been kind of like this. You know, um, the switch from, in administrations from the Obama administration to the Trump administration brought its own uh, set of issues. Um, some of it were the leftover executive orders that were problematic for religious liberty from the Obama administration, like the transgender mandate, like the HHS mandate, all of these um, medically related issues uh, that tr- kind of trampled on the conscience of religious believers, both in ministry, but also in the medical field. Um, and then now with our own our own issues associated with the pandemic and the Supreme Court's willingness to take on some really important questions around religious employment um, and just government contracting with religious groups, questions that we've had for a very long time that um, need answers so that we can continue to live this beautiful pluralistic experiment that we live in america
2: mm-hmm. so Monsi, for the listeners can you just explain very briefly i mean so basically uh, beckett fund i mean your primary work is representing the interests of interests of who i mean you you have on staff a lot of attorneys correct yeah and we are a law firm okay so you're a law firm that's what you do that's what yeah. i was getting at yeah, I mean, course, what is yes, the weird what is you're the main a... work that you do
1: we're a nonprofit law firm as our mission states that we're a nonprofit law firm that defends religious freedom for all. And what does that mean? It's religious freedom A through Z. We defend Anglicans, Zoroastrians, we like to say. Um, because we were founded based on the Catholic understanding of religious freedom which is based on the dignity of the human person and your right to search for God. And wherever that journey is, the government should never intervene. Should never either coerce you to believe something or tell you not to believe something. You should be free at whatever moment in your life to seek God. And that's just, you know, a true understanding of the human person, natural law, all of those things that we hear all the time, but it's also very practical. Um, we, we know from histories of persecution in our, in our history as human beings, but also in the United States, um, that you never want the government to be able to co-opt religion for its
2: purposes. It's beautiful. Good work.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: I, um, one, I think probably of, of all of the issues you're working on, it, well, it's hard for me to know what would be the foremost in people's minds, but I would expect it would be the, um, the church reopening issue. I know that, that um, in terms of just emails that we sometimes get here at the Bishop's Conference, um, things that I see on social media, I mean, this has been something that just, that obviously affects people um, in a very immediate way, this issue of when can churches reopen? Um, I think it hits the closest to home to a lot of people. Um, and so on the one hand, you know, I see a lot of people, uh, people in my own community, very concerned about this. Uh, and then I also see people on my social media feeds are kind of dismissive about the religious thing. They think that people of faith are asking for special rights or they're indulging in this kind of victim mentality and they don't think that that rings true. Um, so what can you just say a little bit about Uh, What's going on here? Are churches asking for some kind of special treatment? Uh, You know, what's, where is Beckett working in this? And just kind of maybe walk us through a little bit of what's going on with church openings.
1: Sure, absolutely. So, you know, this is a hard issue. It's a hard one because... As we, as we understand it, the government is built to protect us, right? They're supposed to protect us from some very basic things. Protect your, you know, the, the ambulance comes when there's a fire in your house. There are, um, we have police officers who are supposed to keep us safe. I know that's controversial right now. But generally, the government is supposed to keep you safe, keep children safe, keep families safe. And, um, and that is called a compelling interest when we talk about legal jargon, right? There's this, Uh, this uh, interest of the government to do certain things for you that only the government can do. Um, And one of those things is protecting us from pandemics. And so they have a compelling interest or they had in the beginning of this crisis, health crisis, um, to keep us home to avoid contagion. And that made a lot of sense in the beginning. But as that began to change and evolve, and you saw plans develop for businesses to open, for um, parks to open, tattoo parlors, beauty parlors. I mean, I can give you a list movie theaters, um, mm-hmm. retailers. Uh, when you start to open anything, you have to also have a plan to open the religious groups. Uh, because we know that religion has a very special place in our constitution and is protected in a very special way beyond what business, with the prote- protections afforded to businesses. And so, the problem there wasn't necessarily in the beginning when everything was shut down across the board. It's when we started making plans to reopen and churches were seen as not essential and not even a part of the discussion or the considerations for reopening because of the lack of um, religious literacy, I would say. I want to be charitable. Um, Rather than saying that they were targeting churches, I try to think that maybe it's just that some people aren't church goers and they don't understand it or they fear what they don't know. Because in my mind, there is nothing more predictable than a Lutheran or Catholic liturgy. Um, There is nothing that is more (laughs) scripted than that, right? Yeah, yeah. When you're going to stand, when you're going to kneel, when you're going to walk in. Um, And there's definitely a way to create an environment where you can socially distance, you can make sure that you're not spreading the virus, but at the same time, worship um, in a very reverent way. And so those just seemed like really um, outlandish claims to make. And then when the protests broke out, we ended up seeing that people's hearts were breaking, and they really needed to have these difficult conversations. And there's no place better than in a place where you're talking about a higher power and you know the true love that all people have from God, um, no matter what color they are, what background they are. And so, and that was kept from people as well. So the issues there are painful, but they're also constitutional, and people had a very much a right to be upset. Um, I think in the beginning it was really hard, and we were grabbing at anything we could to reopen, but definitely, once governments started creating their reopening plans, um, the lack of consideration for religion uh, caused some great religious freedom conflicts mm-hmm. definitely some concern
2: there do you think that it's it's it you were being being very charitable right is yeah it, is it intentional versus just a lack of as you said religious literacy, or does it our govern our do do local state officials, are they just, are they, do they tend to be so trained or uh, their mindset is so separation of religion from uh, politics and, and um, you know, government, are they in that mentality that they think that they just don't think of churches as something that they should be um, concerned about when it comes to rights Right. Yeah. Religious liberty. Is it that? I mean, what is it? I think it's both. They just don't think of it.
1: I think it's both. So it was either an opportunity or an excuse. You know, it's an excuse not to have to dive into things that make you uncomfortable or that maybe you have personal issues with and personal biases against. Um, and for others, it was an opportunity to further this idea that churches are secondary, that they're, it's not an important thing motivator for you it's not something that is a part of who you are as an as an individual as a human person so um i would say both right the excuse or the opportunity and they're both problematic because they're both prejudiced they're both discriminatory you saw it with de blasio in new york
0: well i was just about to ask you if you cared to comment on new york i mean
1: absolutely i just
0: think that that's been one of the most egregious places where with unequal and that's not real. That seems to be affecting the Jewish community more. I've been using the term church reopening, but um, some it's of houses stuff of worship, is right? All <laughs>
1: houses of worship. This yeah. happened in the middle of Ramadan, and I can't imagine a community that took more care to both because they always have a spotlight on them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also because they wanted to be able to be in community in a moment when community is everything in that ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, so you think about other. Um, the Jewish community in New York and the funerals that they were targeted for. I mean, on Twitter there were pictures of people who were just going out of morbid curiosity, right, to see who was getting together. And you see these droves of people with gloves and masks, trying to be really careful. And the hardest part for me is that De Blasio continued. He didn't stop after people called him out and said, "Hey, that's anti-Semitic." In a moment when the pandemic just broke out and people are, you know, their hearts are breaking over the the loss of life in their community. Um, it's when you had protesters on the streets and government officials who were participating in processions, participating in side-by-side kneeling moments of silence that mm-hmm. looked just like a liturgy to me, um, looked just like moments of prayer and religion, it's just that the kind of speech and the kind of exercise that was in that forum isn't one that they agreed with or wanted to be a part of. And mm-hmm. that's, you are making a judgment on what is valuable and what is not. And so having people gather outside, some with masks, some not, um, protesting a grave injustice and a murder, totally understand that, and I was definitely a part of it. But you don't get to do that and then at the same time tell Jewish people who want to pro- do a procession with a funeral to go home. Mm-hmm. And those pictures yeah. should have been side by side and put on his desk.
0: Right, or, and even the, like, the recent thing where they're locking up, locking up the parks playgrounds Playgrounds where you're still encouraging people or allowing people together for this other thing. It's just, it's such a blatant, you know, favoring one form of speech over another. I just, I, I mean, it's hard to believe that it's,
1: it's toned It's dead. America. This is yeah. like this is America.
0: <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> this, is <not> so, <laughs> this is America. just yeah. going It's go, okay. <laughs> and I will tell you, you know, the nice thing is those crazies are outliers. And I say that. I say that. Um, not. I'm not trying to be disparaging, but I do think that these are moments of, they're crazed moments where you're desperate and you don't know how to react and you want to be there for one community maybe you don't understand the other one or you have a deep bias and you are definitely you know shoving them off to the side, but. These moments of despair only overtook a couple of our states, right? So mm-hmm. 38 states reacted well and had reopening plans that were conscious of the essential nature of religion and the essential, essential nature of gathering in nine who were awful, 13 that were not so great. But the, the bad actors were not in the majority. And I think that's a good sign. That's something that definitely, you know, in moments where um, the religious liberty fight isn't always exciting and positive, that's something you can really lean into and understanding that the majority of American governments and citizens view religion as something that is essential and important. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's that's one kind of small light at the end of the tunnel.
0: I wonder, I mean, I don't want to belabor the the church reopening thing, but I did want to just ask about one one of the cases that y'all were a little bit involved in it was the Minnesota bishops. I just thought that that was, um, that that was all done so well, that that could be a model for how to deal with, with some of these issues where, for one thing, the letter was just excellent. Um, it, I mean, the way that, the to me, the combination of understanding of how the law should, is supposed to be working here, the government's compelling interest, and and theology and the understanding about the church, uh, was just, sometimes those things get kind of split up and I think it doesn't end up working very well. So it was, I, I thought that that letter was just great. Um, you know, they emphasized that they understood the government's interest, uh, but there was no reason to treat the churches differently. Could you just say a little bit about, you know, that was a disagreement basically with the governor, And it ultimately was resolved. Can you say kind of how that got resolved and what? what Archbishop Hebda did
1: a beautiful job there. Yeah, he's a a wonderful shepherd of that community and has some deep relationships. You know, he's a bridge builder. And so even before we got involved, they, nine weeks into um, the shelter-in-place order, decided, you know what, let's make a plan. Let's be thoughtful about this. Let's talk to the health officials. And they had a detailed protocol for how to allow people to come back, how to avoid contagion, how to keep um, the vulnerable home and still bring them the sacraments. And at the same time, how to have, I mean, they had a different entry and exit plan um, depending on the kind of service and what they were trying to do. You know, if it's adoration, it looks like this. If it's mass, it looks like that. This is, uh, you know, the hand-washing station, um, no Eucharistic ministers or yes to Eucharistic ministers, like just a very different, um, very detailed approach to wanting to keep people safe, but also understanding mm-hmm. their spiritual needs. And that then was brought to um, the governor and and to local officials and they ignored the plan. And that to me is the part that was so frustrating. You don't need litigation to make this stuff work. Mm-hmm. Um, litigation is the last resort and it was his last resort. He did everything he was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. The most beautiful part for me was really knowing the motivation um, behind wanting to reopen and in that diocese and archbishop hebda's personal desire came from wanting to give his alcoholics anonymous program the accountability of the eucharist which is how their program is built so he had people who were trying to recover from a you know grave illness and who who had made a promise to god and were trying to live it every day I don't think that if you think about the number of people who are in that program coming to mass, I don't think that that is a, you know, a, a health violation or a program. I do a problem. I do think it's beautiful to know that in the heart of the shepherd that is there and wants to take care of them, his priority was getting them the sacraments so that they could live good lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that's your motivation, how can you say no to that? And the yeah, only way that you can find out that that's the motivation is by sitting down and having a conversation, and mm-hmm. have for the governor to say, "Well, Archbishop, why do you want to reopen, and how can I help you?" Mm-hmm. Rather than, "I'm sorry, I don't have time to have this conversation because I'm dealing with something else." And um, that it was it was really sad that we it had to come to that into a legal letter, but I do think the arguments are there, mm-hmm. um, and the church teaching is there. You know, our church is a church that understands faith and reason, and and we bring whenever necessary, the arguments beyond faith that allow us to understand why things happen and why we do them. And so it's perfectly normal to see this kind of a relationship where we can create safety protocols and still come back, you mm-hmm. know, and open our doors.
0: And I have to say, I also just appreciated though, that they, um, they didn't, really ask the government's permission. Oh, yeah.
1: No, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> said, yeah.
0: They said, this is what we're doing. And if great. you don't have
1: time for me, I know I'm not viola- violating any laws. I'm actually being much more careful than you want businesses to be. I think that's where they were definitely on solid ground. They were being yeah, yeah. more careful than the businesses were being. So at that point, what are you going to find me for? You know, right, and just right. having that confidence in that you're doing the right thing. Right. And that you're doing it well.
0: Yeah, yeah. They acted in good faith Uh, And in the end, though, they said, this is what we're doing. Uh, I I thought that the the combination of both, it was both prudent, there was prudence there in terms of how they judged how to handle the situation, but also the boldness to actually say, to to just say, this is what we are doing. Um, Yeah, which is really
1: necessary. At some point, um, when the government isn't doing right right? Um, when the government is violating the constitution, um, you go by what precedes that, you know, right, you go right. by what is what you know is correct. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of wisdom, like you said, and prudence in that, in knowing that there was something wrong here that was eventually going to hurt people even more. Um, you when you make that assessment, and you realize the consequences of following those laws, um, just they, they were untenable, you know, look at what happened a week later there. What would you have done without a pastoral response to the kind of pain right. that was there? Yeah, there was definitely providence in the actions that Archbishop Henda took.
0: Well, there you have, as I mentioned, you have several big cases. Uh, <laughs> we, don't, we don't, we don't have time to talk about all of them, uh, and so I, I think you know, we'll just we'll see how many we can we can roll through in the limited amount of time we have. So, and I think that probably the the one that everybody knows about and probably can't believe that this is still. I mean I was so I was thinking about this so the little sisters of the poor. I was thinking about this um you know before we started the call we were just we were we were just all chatting with each other. I was talking about my kids. I mean two of my kids weren't even born when this all started. Oh um, my
2: I, gosh. I, <laughs> I, wow.
0: I was still working. I was still um a graduate student uh, when all of this started. I mean just to put it into perspective I was looking up and thinking like what all has happened? Like, I we, we bought a house and settled into the area. <laughs> oh
2: my gosh, I mean, the poor just, little like, sisters of the poor. Like, it's like the ultimate. Oh, it's I can't believe it. How I mean, so how, a how, break? In the,
0: <laughs> how in the world is this case still going? What is I because I just imagine a lot of our listeners probably might not realize that this is still yeah. going on. What is going on?
1: It's, um, it's insane, yes. <laughs> and it has been eight years of a battle. Um, it's the same issue over uh, your ability to serve, you know, your ability to follow your conscience. And w- the Little Sisters of the Poor did win their case in 2016. So we all know that the government mandate, the HHS mandate that forced them to provide abortion and um, contraceptive drugs in their employee health care plans um, even though the government had conceded already that there were many other ways that they could give these drugs and services to women without having to force the Little Sisters of the Poor to pay for them and provide them. That victory is real. And they did win their day in court then. The Supreme Court told the government to change their rule that was forcing them to provide these drugs and services. So the Supreme Court says, absolutely, the Little Sisters win. Now go ahead, make the change. You have an election happen then. And then it's not the Obama administration that's changing the rule, it's the Trump administration that's changing the rule. And these state, these state attorney generals who don't like Trump um, came after him and said, your, your rule is unconstitutional. And I don't, I, again, giving people the benefit of the doubt, I'm not sure that they even thought that what they were doing was throwing the Little Sisters Ministry under the bus and were just running right over them. Um, but that's definitely what the effect was. They were basically stealing the Little Sisters' victory from them and telling them, you don't matter. My political ambitions matter more. And so, and that case went all the way back up to the Supreme Court because the reality is if you change that rule and you make it unconstitutional, you're taking away that protection from the Little Sisters of the Poor. The moment that we start talking about the consequences of not just violating your conscience and providing these drugs and services, but making difficult decisions like the one Archbishop Hebda had to make of civil disobedience that come with heavy fines that might bankrupt and shut down your ministry. Those are the real consequences that come with some of these laws that we are fighting in the courts, but also have to make sure that um, legislators understand when they're crafting them from the beginning so that we don't have these things um, furthering themselves and becoming law to begin with.
2: So if... When when we hear the results of this case, which it should sh- should be in the next couple of weeks, is that right? Yes, yes. We okay, when we get left of the decision of my time of the year. It's like Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when we get this decision, the decision will apply to all religious employers. Is that correct? It
1: applies to every five hundred one c three. It applies to every um, religious group that has a religious exemption. Because what, the, the arguments that are being furthered now through religious exemption is unconstitutional. It's every exemption to any law that violates religious freedom is con- unconstitutional. So they're going after all religious exemptions across the board. And that is obviously, it's problematic for many reasons. Um, but that theory, advancing that theory that people do not, are not allowed to have religious exemptions, is, um, it's un-American. And it goes against not just legal tradition, but the cultural tradition of the founding of our country.
2: So Catholic schools, any, any faith-based um, healthcare? Yes, particularly providers. Healthcare healthcare if, yeah. Okay. You know, one in, what is it? One in
1: seven beds, um, hospital beds in the United States is Catholic. Hmm. Um, that number may have gone up because of the COVID crisis, um, but I, I believe that that is, you know, you, you're really putting in peril the arms and the feet of the church and the way that religious groups in general, not just Catholics help out, um, to make, to make our country even better, right. To make people's lives good.
0: What's so strange about it though, is with that with the way this came back is this, I, it, the argument as I understand it is essentially that the federal government itself can't give these exemptions. And I don't quite, I, that just seems weird to me, but weird. <laughs> that in administrative, that in the rulemaking process, that the administration can't do that. Um,
1: it's it, and it's kind of um, hypocritical because um, the previous administration makes so many exemptions. You know, the HHS mandate, when it was first conceived, didn't exempt churches. That it exempted Exxon. Um, it exempted the military. It exempted huge businesses and institutions that didn't have to be a part of this mandate. And so. Um, religious exemptions are truly what people are going after here. Uh, but it's, but the culture of exemptions is the kind of the the pluralistic culture of understanding that there is no size, all size, one size fits all answer, um, to, to the way that we live in our, in our country. And they're trying to turn everything into a square box. You know, um, they, they want to put everything into one solution and that, that doesn't work, not in this country.
0: Yeah. We just have a few minutes left. So just um, let me ask you about one more case. Uh, we we often just refer to it as Espinoza uh, at the USCBC. It's it's a case we're really interested in because uh, it has it gives the court a chance to kind of take a whack at Blaine amendments. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if you could just say a little bit what's going on with the case. You may maybe quickly just say what a Blaine amendment is. Um, sure.
1: For- Religious schools have a long history and private schools in um, in the United States. And the reason that Catholic schools were founded um, here was for the furtherance of the faith, right? And in order to keep Catholic communities from being discriminated against, your kid would go to school, would learn different things from what um, the faith instruction that you were receiving, that because schools were religious in some way, they were Protestant, they weren't Catholic. And so why would you send your, your child to a school that is going to teach them um, that your religion is wrong, right? Um, mm-hmm. A little bit like what we have in public schools today. And so 19th century anti-Catholic bigotry, these laws were created to keep Catholics both out of having schools, but also from participating in school. So I'm going to keep you uneducated, but also I'm not going to allow the furtherance of your faith and your values uh, because it's both level, but also politically just doesn't work. I don't want you to grow um, and, and foster, Right. Um, and that's 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 a reality. We see that today. Um, it, but there's a lot of existing anti-Catholic bigotry in areas of you know commerce. Um, people who I mean, you saw it in the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court justices. Anti-religious bigotry and anti-Catholic bigotry is real because it's part of our history. And the only way to make it go away is to make these laws that were created with that spirit um, and that understanding unconstitutional. Make them go away. And so this case is about um, a woman uh, who wanted her daughters to have an opportunity to go to a school that was going to help them flourish. Um, It definitely is about school choice and parental choice, but the reality is that most of these schools, these private schools, are religious, and you should have the choice to send your child to whatever school you think is best for them. A lot of these schools have great programs for special needs students. They have great programs for, um, you know, I'm I'm an ESOL student, right? My parents sent me to a school that had a wonderful English language program so that I could learn English and communicate. Um, and a lot of these schools have these special programs and allow children who have different needs um, to find a place for themselves. And and so that's at stake. And for our church, it's our freedom to to have schools. It's our freedom to partner with um, our local community and really um, and really create a mirror for ourselves so that we can see our values furthered as well, right? So that we can see our community grow and give them opportunities and families opportunities to create lovers, um, both for minorities, um, people who are on the, you know, lower side of the income scale um, and people that we know that we can help because we understand the human person so well um, through some of these very special social programs and, you know, disability accessibility kind of uh, special offerings that that religious schools have,
2: Matzi. Just I think it can be hard for people to understand how Supreme Court decisions affect their lives and trickle down to you know a, t- a little town in the middle of you know Nebraska or whatever. Could you just explain like how this really impacts the lives of people all over? The Absolutely. Country? You know
1: happen? it's it's a it's an interesting thing to talk about because it's so far away. And unless you come to D.C., you you don't think about You think about the building and the nine justices. You know, I'm not sure that everybody knows that there are nine of them Um, other than, you know, Thomas and Ginsburg, who are super popular now because of their movies. uh, I'm not sure that people actually know who the Supreme Court justices are. And Supreme Court decisions have nationwide impact whatever it is that the court decides today or tomorrow, the different issues, if you want to talk about the qualified immunity issue right now, everyone's thinking about what we can do to um, give more accountability within the police force. Um, That's an issue that the Supreme Court decided yesterday not to take up. Um, Had they taken it up, it would have had these huge ramifications around the country where whatever it is that they said would have had to be applied on a local level. And so what they decide absolutely affects you in your court's um, in your city, and your municipality, in your state. Um, and it, it creates a dialogue between um, federal law and state law, right? Our constitution and state constitutions. And all of that comes down to your elections. Who you are choosing for governor, who you are choosing for senate. Your senators confirm your Supreme Court justices. Your president chooses the list of Supreme Court justices. So when you have a vacancy there, when someone is going to be nominated onto the court, it actually really matters who you have elected into those other positions. And so if you're not going out to vote and you're not considering that the person that you're putting on the court is going to affect the rest of your life, but also the rest of your children's lives, because these are lifetime appointments. So the court affects you for sure, but they affect the future of the country because they're there for a very, very long time.
0: I can see that like this particular, the Espinoza case, um, similar to the Trinity Lutheran case, which we don't have time to discuss, but these issues have to do with whether or not um, religious entities can or can, can partner with the government, basically. Um, at least that's how I would summarize them. absolutely and And there are you know there are lots of ways that churches or religious groups can can in positive ways. Um, And still respect our established our our tradition of non-establishment of religion, and also still partner with and serve the public in some way and receive government funding. And especially, especially if you're a person of faith who wants to send your your child to um, a a religious school, whether it's Catholic or or evangelical or, or even or Jewish or Muslim, like these these cases really open up the possibility for to make that to expand those, you know, scholarship programs and all sorts of things. So, um, I, I think, I mean, as a parent, I, I, although we homeschool ourselves, um, so in some ways it doesn't affect me immediately, but I certainly understand these particular cases that have to do with schools to me are, are really big. Um, I know that I think we're holding you up from another call. And so, um, I don't want to, to hold you up any longer. Well, Mary, do you have any any last final thing? I don't want to...
2: No, just, uh, wow, great. Thanks for your incredible work. It's so important. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, thank you for all the ways that you serve. I love what Beckett's doing. Um, then you're, and you personally doing, are just seems like you're all over the place doing all sorts of things. So <laughs> appreciate all your work. And it's been great talking to you.
1: Same here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Our guest today has been Monse Alvarado from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. I'm Aaron Weldon.
2: And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.